So friends, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're looking this morning from verse 9 through to verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, from verse 9 through to verse 20, you'll find it on page 955 in the church Bibles, and if you can follow along with me, that will help, but I'm going to read it out for us now. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and beginning at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, friends, uh, this morning we're looking at what the Bible has to say about sexuality. This is the second in our series on cross and culture. Last week, we looked at how Jesus' teaching about the Good Samaritan in the context of Luke's gospel redefines our thinking and then reprioritizes our practice with relation to mercy ministries and justice today. Like Mary, we must receive the teaching of Jesus so to be transformed to love God, and out of that comes love for neighbor. We must first listen up in order to reach out. Well, today we come to an even more confused matter. And again, our goal will be to teach what the Bible has to say. We will be expositing or explaining 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 20, in the context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, to see what that says about the matter of sexuality today. One illustration of the confusion there is today about this matter is Facebook. 
When you open an account on Facebook, you must choose your gender. The options given to you are male, female, or custom. So while a few years ago the debate that was raging was related to homosexuality, today it is moving towards matters of what are called gender dysphoria, uh, intersex, transgender. Now I believe that uh, behind all of this is a generic confusion as to the goodness of God and the nature of the gospel. And I believe that 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and these verses in the context of this letter to the Corinthians will greatly help us, both our culture and the wider church's confusion about sexuality and recalibrate our thinking and our practice. Now a final word before I begin the three parts of this sermon, which will be an exposition of the text, the relation of that to our theme, and then how it applies at a more practical level. My agenda here is simply to hear what the Bible says. So when I talk about the culture, I'm not meaning it in any political way. I just mean people outside of the church and what they tend to think and do. And when I talk about the church, I don't mean college church specifically. I mean the church in general in the sense of Christians. Now, with those clarities in place, let us then consider what 1 Corinthians 6 and in particular verses 9 to 20 says, then what that means for our culture's conversation about sexuality, and then how that applies to us today. Text, theme, and then what that means for me. First then, let's look at the text. These verses that we just read out together obviously occur in a book, a letter, that is normally called 1 Corinthians, or if you live on the other side of the pond in England, 1 Corinthians, and is gathered together into two letters called 1 and 2 Corinthians. These are letters written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth that he started. 1 Corinthians, most scholars agree, was written about A.D. 54 or so, that is just a couple of decades after Jesus had died and risen again. Corinth was a wealthy city which had been destroyed and then refounded by Julius Caesar over a hundred years before Paul was writing. It was filled with uh, Romans, some Greeks, and some Jews. It was a cosmopolitan city, drawing people from all around the uh, world at the time. It had control of uh, two ports on either side of it, two harbors. And from that came its source of wealth, trading wealth as ships docked on one side, were dragged across the four or so miles to the other side to avoid the uh, dangerous sea journey around the bottom of Greece for ships at the time. 1 Corinthians is structured around the message of the cross. At the start of the letter, Paul tells them that he is pleased to know nothing among them except the message of the cross of Jesus, which he says is the power of God for those who are being saved. And then at the end of the letter, Paul speaks at length about the glorious resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and that means that all those who believe in Jesus will also bodily rise from the dead. And so the message of the cross, start and finish, 
is then applied to a number of issues that have come up in the church, in this cosmopolitan church, this cosmopolitan city, this new money city, this real center of everything that was happening in the world at the time. Sexual immorality and idolatry being the two prominent ones that Paul addresses. In fact, the middle of 1 Corinthians, between the message of the cross bracketed at start and the end of the letter, is constructed around two exhortations to flee. Flee sexual immorality in our verse 18, and then flee idolatry in chapter 10. So overall, 1 Corinthians is Paul's message to the church in Corinth that the way to stop being infiltrated by the culture around them, uh, in chapter 3, verse 3, he says, are you not just acting or thinking in a mere human way that has been infiltrated by the, the thinking and the practices of the culture around them in Corinth? The way to avoid such infiltration is and in particularly in relation to sexual morality and all the many idols of that city, the way to avoid that was to hear again that message of the cross that he had preached to them when they had first become Christians and then apply that to the matters of sexuality and idolatry. Now remember, if you will, that Paul's letter to the Romans was written almost certainly while Paul was in Corinth, and Romans makes In Romans, Paul makes the case that sexual immorality is the fruit of idolatry. And here in his letter to the Corinthians, he is saying something similar, though in a more practical way. Flee sexual immorality, flee idolatry because of the message of the cross. Now, in our passage, uh, verses 9 to 20, Paul is telling the Corinthians that they should know better how to live with relation to this matter of sexual immorality because of this message of the cross. Four times in these verses he asks, do you not know? Meaning, you really should know better, Corinthian Christians. You should be able to apply what I taught you about the cross when you first heard the message of the gospel now to this matter of sexual immorality. The first do you not know section reminds them the message of the cross meant that while some of them came from sexually immoral backgrounds, such were some of you, and now in a new relationship with God, um, washed, sanctified, justified, those verbs together meaning that they were now established as pure and righteous before God through faith in Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So what they needed to remember was that this change of status with God meant something to do with the body. The body, he writes, is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The typical Corinthian slogan, uh, all things are lawful for me, he quotes, or as we would say, I can do whatever I want. For sexual appetites are just like appetites for food, the the, the stomach for food and food for the stomach, it's just an appetite, isn't it? So what difference does it make? Those slogans of the culture around, that kind of way of thinking, needed to be looked at from the light of the message of the cross. 
so that now all of them, including the body, was meant for the Lord, that is to serve Jesus. Now, the other, do you not knows, uh, the other three drive in this idea that this message of the cross must have implications for how they live in relation to their body. The body is now mentioned seven times in the next few verses. That is in relation to their physical, sexual behavior. Now, before I explain these other three, do you not knows, uh, briefly, I should mention these two terms translated those who practice homosexuality. Um, Before God called me to be a pastor, I trained as a historian. And I have more recently done a lot of work researching homosexuality in the ancient world. And I have become convinced that while the Greeks and Romans thought about homosexuality differently than we do, they had a whole range of different words for it. While that's true, they absolutely were aware of the same phenomenon of homosexual condition and practice as we are. Now, if you doubt that, just read Plato's Symposium. Uh, Read up on Achilles and Patroclus. Uh, Read, if you really want to, about Nero's three or so marriages to men. Read about uh, Emperor Elagabalus' marriage to a man. Now, there certainly were abusive relationships of master to slave and uh, all the rest. There's no doubt about that. But they knew about homosexual commitment between consenting adults, and Paul, of course, would have known about it as well. And it is in this bustling world of sexuality that Paul is writing, such were some of you. And he wants them to remember, do you not know? how the message of the cross applies to their body, that is, their sexual morality, their sexual physical behavior. The message of the cross means they're also going to be raised bodily as Jesus was, verse 14, and therefore what they do in the body now matters. The message of the cross means they are spiritually united to Christ as members. That uh, word members has become a little bit of a dead metaphor in our time. And one commentator says, uh, uh, limbs and organs connected to Christ. Um, Verses 15 and 16. And therefore, because they're members of Christ, they must not unite themselves physically with a prostitute. The message of the cross means that their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, verse 19, and therefore they are not their own, but they belong to Christ. And all this causes Paul to urge them to flee from sexual immorality with the added argument that sexual sin uniquely is against your own body. Now, obviously, there are other ways to harm your body other than sexual immorality, What Paul means there, though, is that it has specific damaging impact related to the intimate nature of sexual sin. 
Now, it's not irredeemable, of course. No, he has just said, for such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified, washed, made clean, sanctified, now able to be set on a path of living for Jesus' glory, justified now with a righteous status before a holy God. Well, it's not irredeemable. No, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God, there can be this new creation that God brings to pass. So Paul was saying that because of the message of the cross, they are now bought by the price of Jesus' blood and redeemed from this world of dirt and sin. And therefore, in the light of this redemption and their coming resurrection through the power of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, they should flee sexual immorality as they should flee idolatry too and glorify God with their body. In other words, Paul is saying that living a life of sexual faithfulness comes out of what they should already know about the message of the cross, about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Or to put it even more succinctly, true sexuality is rooted in true spirituality. So that's the first section of the sermon, explain the text in front of us today. And what we discover is that Paul is saying that a life of sexual faithfulness to God comes out of what we should already know about the message of the cross. Now the second section is then to relate that to this theme of sexuality today. What does this mean then as we think about sexual morality in our own context? It means that we need to remind ourselves of what the message of the cross is and how it relates to sexuality. Start with creation. The message of the cross is about redeeming people into a new creation, redeeming fallen people. The message of the cross begins with the teaching that God made us. How does that apply to this matter of sexuality? Well, in the Bible story, God made us male and female. This was not an accidental creation, but part of the way that there are distinctions in his creation, uh, heaven and earth, male and female. Together we come in the end to a marriage of the bride of Christ. And so sexuality at roots is not only rooted into creation, it's also a reflection of the gospel story of the resurrection of God's people and the heavenly wedding banquet to come. Our maleness and our femaleness are not accidental, but theological, even evangelistic. Gospel elements, part of the overall message of the cross, starting with creation. There are people, and there always have been people, who are born what used to be called hermaphrodite, or what is now called intersex, that is with some physical confusion about gender body parts. But the number of people born this way is um, very small. It's about 0.018% of the population, according to the U.S., Government National Center for Biotechnology Information. Now, the reason why it's important for us to understand the true prevalence is because some activists for transgender 
Um, that is, people who feel that they are male when they are born female or vice versa. Some activists use intersex as a kind of rhetorical device for saying that the psychological feeling is the same as the physical. We must be loving with people who struggle, struggle with this condition. These are real people. But as Paul McHugh, a distinguished professor at the John Hopkins School of Medicine, puts it, it is not obvious how this patient's feeling that he is a woman trapped in a man's body differs from the feeling of a patient with anorexia nervosa that she is obese despite her emaciated, coquettic state. We do not do liposuction on anorexics. Why amputate the genitals of these poor men? Surely the fault is in the mind, not the member. In other words, it comes down to a theology of the body. And that comes out of remembering the message of the cross, which starts with creation. A colleague of mine called Vaughan Roberts has a very helpful little book on transgender And in it, he quotes from Sam Albury, a Christian who is faithfully celibate while acknowledging he's experienced the temptation of same-sex attraction. And Sam Albury says this, Our culture says your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it. The Bible says your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be be conformed to it. So you start with creation, but then you go to the fall. That is, we are sinners, and every part of our personality is in some way tainted by sin. Now, it can sometimes seem very cruel to tell someone who struggles with their sexuality in some way or other that the biblical options open to them are what Paul outlines in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians that, of course, immediately follows on from chapter 6 in part of his argument about all of this. That is, the biblical options are celibacy, which was Paul's gift, or lifelong marriage commitment of a man and woman. It can seem very hard to say that. I uh, quite like how N.T. Wright put it once in this regard. He was approached uh, by a young man who had recently had an affair uh, very soon after he got married, and this young man was very confused about this affair. He was confused because he could not understand how it had happened. Wright said it uh, apparently never seemed to have crossed the mind of this man that many men are natural polygamists. By nature, they are wired to have intimacy with many different women. Now, of course, a pastor's response to a young man like that is that it might feel the most desirable thing in the world, even the most natural thing in the world to have an affair. But part of the deal of being a Christian is that you fight against those desires. So if we need to be reminded of the creation, we also need to be reminded of the fall. What we desire is not necessarily good for us. What we feel is right is not necessarily right. We are all on a project of being rewired to think right about life and eternity because we are naturally 
fallen. So we start with creation, then with the fall, and then redemption. Well, of course, the good news is that none of this is any barrier to fellowship with Christ because of the message of the cross. Some of you were those who practiced homosexuality. Some of you were greedy or revilers, which means slandering and gossiping about people. This is where we came from. But in Christ we are redeemed. By faith in him, because of what he did on the cross, every church has above its front door sinners welcome. For if it did not, there would be no one here. You know, in many ways, I think the saddest thing about this debate in our society at large is the church has been misheard. Now, partly it's been misheard because it has misspoken. Sometimes it has been misunderstood. The church has been misheard on what we really think is the truth about the matter because it hasn't been related to the message of the cross. But we've also been misheard about the love of Christ that is for anyone really anyone at all, including me and you. I uh, love this song that I was taught as a child. There is a door that is open, and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. All you need to do is come as a sinner. That's the only condition. Trust Jesus. Repent and believe, as the traditional formula is. And then you'll find, like so many of us have, that this is what some of you were. And now you're washed and justified by the name of the Jesus and Jesus and the power of his, of his Spirit. So we apply the message of creation, fall, redemption, but then also response. And of course, this is what Paul is doing most of all to the Corinthians. They already are Christians. Now they need to understand how the message of the cross relates to their lifestyle, even in their body, that is, even in their sexual behavior. Now, many Christians are confused about this, but the Bible is clear. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. As a Christian, you have a new master. And you are called to obey him even when it feels difficult. His way is right even when it feels hard. I like how the 17th century Presbyterian, a member of the Westminster Assembly, uh, Samuel Bolton, Describe the necessity of obedience as a fruit of the gospel. He said this. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. Christ has freed us from the manner of our obedience, but not from the matter of our obedience. We are now enabled to obey, not perfectly this side of heaven, but we now by the Spirit have the power to obey. 
Now, sometimes people can find it difficult to understand why certain parts of the law or the Old Testament are still in force today and others apparently are not. Another Presbyterian working in New York City uh, today, Tim Keller, uh, put it like this. The coming of Jesus changed how we worship, but not how we live. If the New Testament has reaffirmed a commandment, then it is still in force today. So when Paul uh, picks out sexual morality and almost certainly uses terms drawn from Leviticus in the Old Testament, he's not doing it randomly. He's, He's doing so with the authority of Christ. Christ himself taught, quoting from the same passage that Paul here quotes from in verse 16, that a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so the word that is often translated sexual immorality is defined in the Bible by anything outside of of that. And therefore, as Christians, because of the message of the cross, creation, fall, redemption, and response, we are called to live a life of sexual faithfulness and glorify God by so doing. So the first section of the sermon looked at the text and found that in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is teaching us that living a life of sexual faithfulness comes out of what we should already know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. In the second section, we ask how that applies to our conversations in our culture about sexuality today and found that it means that we are to remind ourselves and proclaim everywhere the message of the cross, creation, fall, redemption, response. Now we come to the third section, which is what does this mean in practice? I'm going to approach this by asking and then answering some of the most common questions that as a pastor I am asked about this. I'll put the question in the first person to make it more real feeling because each of the questions represent real people who whenever I'm preaching either here or elsewhere come up to me and ask me variations of these kinds of things. One question I'm often asked goes something like this. I'm a Christian, but I wrestle with homosexual tendencies. What should I do? What hope is there for me? The first thing I would say is that you are not alone. Perhaps you know the Bible verse, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. and God is faithful and just and will provide you a way out so you can stand up under it. Perhaps you feel isolated or lonely. Perhaps you feel no one really understands what you're going through. Let me encourage you to read that little book by Sam Albury called Is God Anti-Gay? You'll find that there are faithful, godly Christian men and women who are living lives that please God, that do experience temptation towards same-sex attraction. Uh, Some people find that Christ removes that temptation and they don't really experience the wrestling anymore. Others find they can get married and the temptation to same-sex attraction is limited and manageable. Others realize they are called to singleness. 
Now, that does not mean by any means, of course, that everyone who is single experiences same-sex attraction. But the call of celibacy is a high and noble one, honored by the example of Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul. And we need to reclaim that vision of singleness as godly and indeed good, a place of flourishing for those who are called to it. You don't have to be a spiritual superhero to manage it. No, in the power of Christ and in fellowship with other Christians, you can do it and discover it to be good. I will put you in touch with people who can encourage you and help you as you think through steps to live a life that pleases Christ. Another question uh, pastors are sometimes asked is this. I experience confusion about whether I'm really male or female. What can I do? Well, I want to listen a lot and understand. I want you to know that you are important to me. There may be some physical medical history that you'll want to tell me about, or it may be more about how you're feeling. I would encourage you not to seek surgical intervention. The statistics about the successfulness of that are not encouraging. Plus, you are not how you feel. This is a hard conversation, I I know, but I want you to think through sexuality in terms of the Bible's trajectory and teaching. Again, I want to make sure you're not isolated or feel alone. Such were some of you, Paul says. This struggle does not define you. It may describe how you're doing right now, but it does not describe who you are. We want our minds to be reordered by God's word, and that takes time for all of us. You know, a lot of what we're dealing with today is the idolatry of the self. We have just as much idolatry today as Corinth did, even if it is less obvious. But we live in an I-world, iPhone, iMac, me, myself, and I. But Paul says, in Christ, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Our identity is rooted in who Jesus is and is defined by the message of the cross. And when you understand that, you realize how secure you really are. No one can take that away from you. Never. The more we see that, the less insecure we will feel. This is true of so many people today, insecure about what they want and who they are, peeling back the sort of onion of the self, trying to find the the authentic self inside. But the, the authentic I is defined by the author of that I, God our creator. And if we're a Christian, Christ our redeemer. Our goal is not to be ourselves. Our goal is to be like Jesus Christ. John Calvin once said, the first step in serving Christ is to forget about ourselves. If you are someone who struggles with transgender specifically, again, I want to listen and understand and make sure you don't feel alone. And I want to encourage you to read another little book by Vaughan Roberts called simply Transgender. 
But what if you're a parent and your child says that they're struggling with their sexuality in some way? Pastor, what do I do then? I would say first, don't panic. Then I would say, make sure you reassure your child of your love for him or her. It it, it takes a lot of guts to tell your parents that you got a B in your grades rather than an A. Imagine how much how much harder it would be to say something like that. They will want to be reassured that you are not rejecting them, that they're not rejected by you. Then take the time to understand. This will not have come from nowhere. They may have just seen some show on TV and decided they want to emulate the person they saw. It could be a very superficial thing and go away on its own soon enough. Part of the problem is that we're working with very stereotypical ideas of what it means to be male or female. You know, men, well, they like to hunt, shoot, and fish, but don't like to do art, sing, or read about 19th century romanticism. Women are stereotypically viewed as more social and caring and all the rest. Now, there may be some truth to these characterizations, for sure. But there is a lot of difference between men and men as well as between men and women. We want to work with biblical ideas of manhood and womanhood, not stereotypes. So your child may have discovered they prefer surrealist art to football and wonder whether they're about their manhood. Or it could be something deeper. Either way, we'll start from listening and love, and then you'll need to seek understanding. Come and talk to a pastor about it. A good book on this is by Seagraves and Levine called Gender, a Conversation Guide for Parents and Pastors. In the end, they, like you, will need to bring the message of the cross and the lordship of Jesus to bear on that situation like any other. And you will need friends, prayer, and support to do that in community. A final question that sometimes comes my way is more along the lines of the person who has authority or responsibility over an institution or organization of some kind and wants to represent Christ well in this regard and encourage good biblical culture in their organization. How do I do that? Well, the first thing I would say is any way you can encourage exposure to the Bible. Some organizations are Christian, so it should be relatively easy to have Bible studies or expository teaching. It may still be a battle even there, but the seed of the Word of God is the spiritual agent of change. I always love the Martin Luther quotation about the Reformation I did nothing, the Word of God did everything. So that's the first thing I would say. Get the Bible pumped into the organization any way you can. If it's not a Christian organization, that may be more challenging, but you can still encourage Bible studies and lunch hours, have Christian teachers come in and give talks that can be voluntarily attended. You may need to understand this area more deeply, read more technical works like Mark Yarhouse, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, or Robert Gagnon, The Bible and Homosexual Practice. One way or another, Get more and more exposure to the word of God. The other thing I would say is pray. 
It is the word of the cross that must be brought to bear through the Bible, and this is a spiritual work, and you will need spiritual wisdom for all the many different decisions that come your way. Do not neglect to ask God for the wisdom you need. The Bible tells us that God is pleased by that request, and if you ask with faith, we'll give you the wisdom you need to lead even in this area with faithfulness. For do not neglect the power of example, your own Christ-likeness. And on that note, let me conclude with an example. We've looked at uh, the text. Living a life of sexual faithfulness comes out of what we should already know about the message of the cross. We've looked at the theme in the light of that text, applying creation, full redemption, and response to sexuality. And we've approached some common questions about sexuality, putting in practice the word of the cross today. What else is there to say? Only this. I uh, thought about beginning this way, but people who write books about how to write sermons tell you that the only thing people remember is the last thing you say. I'm sure that isn't true of you, but... Just in case it is, I decided to leave this to the end. I remember sitting in a meeting with a uh, Christian leader talking about these complicated and emotive matters of sexuality. And at one point he was asked his opinion and this Christian leader proceeded to give a brilliant, elegant, and remarkably eloquent answer. We were all very impressed. Later on, I discovered that this very poor man was struggling with the very things that he had been talking about. In a church this size, there will be any number of people who feel that such were some of you. And yet you need the word from Paul. Do you not know? Perhaps you can give a good answer in your small group or your adult community or at work. Elegant and eloquent. But it seems as if, if we're honest, whether it's the more complicated or the more straightforward matters of sexuality, that perhaps you've forgotten the application of the word of the cross that you received when you became a Christian. If you're not yet a Christian, would you go through the door marked sinner's welcome? If you will, you will find that you are washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If you are already a Christian, as of course many of us here are, would you remember what you should already know? And apply that to your life. And that doesn't mean just giving an eloquent expression of what Christians should think when you're talking about it in the car park afterwards. It means remembering that you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Let's pray together. Just a moment of quiet to remember that.
We thank you, Lord, that you have a vision for life that is richly fulfilling in every way. Would you, by your Spirit, shape our minds and therefore our lives according to the word of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.